0: Welcome to the Past and the Curious My name is Mick Sullivan We have a great show for you today First thing you're going to hear is a story about P.T. Barnum Really, really interesting man had got a really interesting life you're going to hear another story about the longest painting in the world and in addition to all of that we've got quiz time and if that was not enough we have music a wonderful song by the Tamerlane Trio my name is Mick Sullivan and the first voice you're gonna hear is Victoria Rival
1: Do you know what it means? If you don't, that's okay. Neither did the people in this true story. New York City in the 1840s. The world was not as familiar then as it is today. Let me put it like this. How many of these have you seen in real life? A shark? A crocodile? A hippopotamus? A bear? A dinosaur skeleton? Even if you haven't seen these things in real life, you have a lot of resources available for you to learn more. You can go to the library for books, explore online, watch a TV show about them, or ask someone who's seen one and they can tell you. It wasn't that easy in the 1840s. Most people never got to see things like these. So when P.T. Barnum, a famous showman whom we'll talk more about in the future, opened a museum in New York City, people rushed to see it. Originally a museum, which sat on the busy New York street of Broadway, was known as Scudder's Museum. Scudder's had a collection of old fossils, minerals, stones, and the like, but people had grown tired of the displays, which never seemed to change. Mr. Barnum bought it and quickly made arrangements to display some of the most fantastic things people could imagine. It would become like a theater, a zoo, and museum all rolled into one, The fact that some of the objects weren't actually what Barnum claimed them to be didn't matter to him. He had animal cages and aquariums, a live band playing. There was a hot air balloon tethered to the roof. There were Egyptian mummies and a room full of wax figures. People could stand face to face with life-size models of Napoleon, Queen Victoria, and George Washington. In addition to the skeletons and figures, there were live bears... Seals, even a whale! But it wasn't just animals. People from far away lands lived in the building and met with the guests nearly every day. Room after room, and several stories tall, it seemed that around every corner a guest would be met with the sight of something they could have never experienced anywhere outside of the museum. People traveled from all over the United States to see the truly unusual collection. It was a great escape from the everyday life of the time. If Barnum was good at anything, it was getting people's attention. He got hundreds of thousands of people to come into the building to see the wonders on display, each one paying the admission fee. But once they were inside, people wanted to stay all day, so they'd circle back and look at the exhibits several times. This created a problem for Barnum. If people stayed all day long, there wouldn't be enough room for everyone. There was usually a line of paying customers, and they couldn't be turned away. No. Barnum had to keep the people in the museum moving, so he took a gamble. He gambled that most people don't know what an egress is. So, just after a popular gallery towards the end, the one with the real human skeletons, he hung a large, attractive sign with an arrow pointing to a door. It read, To the Egress. You can imagine that after seeing such wild and fantastic creatures in every corner, people might say, Oh, yes. I want to see an egress. They were disappointed. Upon walking out the door, they found themselves on a busy New York street. You see, egress is nothing more than a fancy word for exit. Once the unwitting folks found themselves standing on the New York pavement, they would often grow understandably upset. A trick like this, which wasn't totally dishonest, was what Mr. Barnum called a humbug. If these humbugged folks wanted to go back in, they'd need to buy another ticket. P.T. Barnum wasn't the most honest fellow in the world, but he was a remarkable man. And now, if you see the word egress, remember, it's not some unusual creature. It's an exit! It's
0: quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. time, it's quiz time, it's quiz time, after his career as a museum owner, Barnum got involved in the circus. He had a very famous elephant, who later served as the inspiration for a cartoon character you might know. Do you know the elephant's name? If you said Jumbo, you were right. Jumbo the Elephant was the most popular attraction in Barnum's circus. In fact, some would call him the very first animal superstar. When Barnum bought him, Jumbo-mania swept the United States. And you could find that pachyderms image on everything from neckties to soaps to postcards to ornaments and much more. And he was the inspiration for the Disney character Dumbo. Question number two. P.T. Barnum helped popularize what type of music in the United States? Well, the answer is opera. In the early 1850s, Swedish opera singer Jenny Lind was a superstar in Europe. Barnum brought her to the United States where she gave 93 concerts and gained thousands and thousands of fans. She was a sensation and opera became very popular in the United States because of it. She also made a fortune on the tour. But unlike many of today's pop stars, she donated all of her proceeds from the tour to charity, including to free schools in her home country of Sweden. Question number three, the final question. One of Barnum's most famous humbugs involved a woman named Joyce Heth. He claimed that she was 161 years old and had been a nanny to what American president? Well, it was claimed that Mrs. Heth was George Washington's nanny when he was just a baby. It wasn't true. She was in her 80s when she died, and not in her 160s, as Barnum had claimed. Thousands of people had paid money to meet the woman who cared for George Washington when he was but an infant, but they were... As Barnum would say, humbugged.
1: One hot summer day, a long time ago, a man named John Banvard sat alone on a boat on a river. He lost count of the days. It was well over a hundred. And as he looked around the riverbank, John knew he was nowhere near the end of his journey. The days weren't hard. Occasionally, his body would tire from rowing the oars, but he was never trying to travel fast. Much of the time, his boat would be tied to an overhanging tree near the bank, or nearly motionless on the middle, with an anchor sunk to the muddy river bottom. Sometimes, other boats would pass, moving much faster than John. He would look up from his work and wave. The Mississippi River was the edge of the frontier. For people living back east, it seemed as far away as France or Russia. It was wild. The river banks were overgrown with unending trees and plants. There were animals of every shape and size. Birds flitted to the top of the trees. Deer drank from the river, and bears lumbered from hilltop to hilltop and most people would never get to see it. That was why John was here. It was his plan to take this far-off world to the people in cities back east. He had little to keep him company. Food, a few pieces of clothing, a blanket, but most importantly, he had paper and pencil. As John's skiff meandered its way down the Mississippi, he would stop to sketch nearly everything he saw port towns with pioneer settlers, Native American hunting parties, countless animals, and, of course, the amazing beauty of the wilderness. He'd fill his papers with the drawings by day, and by night he'd bundle them up in a folder, which he used as a pillow. The world of stars above was nearly as large as the great dreams he held in his head. When the journey was over, He returned to Louisville and built a barn outside of town. The papers he sketched were spread out, and John unrolled a giant bolt of canvas. Day and night, John painted enormous versions of his sketches, each one blending into the next. And it looked so much like the riverbank John had lived beside for so long that he often got lost in the memory. When he came to the end of the canvas roll, he carefully sewed a new one to the end. It seemed like he never stopped painting, Finally, months later, it was complete and ready to be seen. He rented a room in a theater that fit his needs, and he took out an advertisement in the local paper. June 29th, 1846. Banvard's moving panorama of the Mississippi will open on Monday. Three miles of painting, 50 cents. John knew people would flock to see this, the longest painting in the world, if for no other reason than to see how he could show them a painting so long in a not-very-large room. But he also knew, once he started to tell them the amazing stories of the wilderness he saw, they would be held spellbound. So, Monday came, and John set up the painting on a new invention he had designed. He built a pair of giant, wooden, three-legged pedestals, which now sat at each side of the stage. The huge roll of canvas sat on top of one, with the first scene of the painting stretched across the stage and attached to the opposite pedestal. With a turn of a crank, the painting began to move. As the canvas was wound from one giant spindle to another, the Mississippi River seemed to float by in between. John waited on the stage in anticipation of the audience. Clearing his throat, his voice echoed from the walls of the empty room and the painting, which stood 12 feet tall, towered above him. He waited and waited. No one came. Not one to be defeated. He rose early the next day and walked to the dockyards. He found it already buzzing with teams of men loading and unloading steamboats, flats and skiffs. He probably spoke with every single man there that day, inviting him to a special free showing of what he called his moving panorama. That afternoon, he waited with his giant painting in the empty hall. Not long after the first man walked in, more followed. John told them tales of port towns and Indians, bears and bald eagles. He might have fibbed a bit telling a story of river pirates— The audience was amazed at the detail of the moving picture in front of their eyes. It looked so lifelike. They were so amazed, in fact, that when it was over, nearly two hours later, they immediately went and told people about what they had seen. That night, John gave his performance again for a full house, and this audience actually bought tickets. And for weeks, it was much the same. Crowds would gather to be whisked away on a journey down the Mississippi River, while remaining comfortably seated in their chairs. John took the show on the road. Boston, New York, and more. He was the talk of the town, and everywhere people flocked to see the spectacle. Soon, John was rich. Perhaps the richest painter in America. Letters came from England and beyond. Everyone wanted to see the Mississippi panorama. Certainly the longest painting in the world. He began to tour with a pianist who played waltzes, specially written for his performance. He even took time off to paint a second version, the West Bank of the Mississippi, to match his East Bank. He hired another man to tour and tell stories with the second version. The Queen of England herself requested a performance, which John was more than happy to oblige. Such was life for John. Years later, John found himself settled in a lap of luxury. His giant New York house, modeled after the Windsor Castle, was a long way off from his old, pillowless skiff on the Mississippi. And despite many imitators, John was still the best in the business. It was his desire to branch out into something new that would prove to be his downfall. With his fortunes, friends, and large batch of artifacts he collected from his travels and several loans, he opened a museum. Banvard's museum was a beautiful building filled with intriguing objects, touring performers, and a theater. His Mississippi panorama sat center stage. The museum itself sat on Broadway in New York City, about three miles away from another museum, P.T. Barnum's American Museum. Mr. Barnum was not a man to be trifled with, and he didn't care for the competition Banvard brought. Many folks claimed Banvard's facility was superior, but with any and every offering Banvard made at his new museum, Barnum would claim to have the same, only better. Mummies, panoramas, even basic ventilation. Because of his influence, and the seemingly unlimited money he could spend on advertising, Barnum would win the museum battle for audiences, even if he wasn't telling the truth. Soon after, John Banvard drifted into obscurity, And to this day, no one is quite sure what became of his so-called three-mile painting in the Mississippi. But for a stretch of time, his dedication and creativity led him to the top of the art world. Though nearly no one knows his name today, he was once the most famous and wealthiest painter in the United States, and perhaps beyond, the creator of the longest painting in the world. What a sight that would have been to have seen.
0: And now it's time for a song! Harold Arlen was a man who wrote a lot of songs that are part of what people call the Great American Songbook, which is a name for all of the classic timeless songs written in the first half of the 1900s. You've probably heard some of his tunes. Among others, he wrote Accentuate the Positive, Come Rain or Come Shine, and several from The Wizard of Oz, including Over the Rainbow. In 1933, The Great Magoo, though funny sounding to me, was a huge flop of a musical but one song that Arlen wrote for it would live a long life, later being recorded by Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, and many more throughout the years. We're going to perform our own version of It's Only a Paper Moon. But first, let's talk about the lyrics. It's a really neat song, and you'll hear the words paint a picture of a make-believe world you might create from materials in art class, paper and canvas and muslin and cardboard, It's easy to visualize a two-dimensional scene that the lyrics describe. And each time, the song tells us things don't have to be this make-believe. That with the faith and help of a loved one, those things can be real. It's really a cool message. But guess who enters the song in the last verse? Our old friend P.T. Barnum. It's a Barnum and Bailey world, just as phony as it could be, is what it says. And it's a reference to Barnum's creation after his museum, the train car circus, and the illusions and humbugs that he created to please or take advantage of an audience depending on whose side you're on. But that's just how big this guy's personality was. 40 years after his death, he would still pop up in a popular song. But again, the song reminds us that just like John Bandbard, if you can dream something, it can be real. Subtitles Thanks again for listening to The Past and the Curious. Look forward to the next episode, which is all about boats. We'll have more music, more stories, more learning. If you enjoyed this, visit us at thepastandthecurious.com. If you are inspired, maybe you want to write a song, you want to write a poem, you want to make a piece of art, share that with us. We might do something with it. And tell your teacher. Maybe you'll get some extra credit.